Subsequently to that impact, that crash, there was a short pause, and we're talking eight, 10 seconds max, and then there was an immediate explosion where clearly the, um, the fire had, had breached the, um, the actual fuel source. And it was an immediate like bomb blast going off. I'm Sonia Morton Ferd, and you're tuned in to the Sonia Morton Ferd Show. Today, my guest is Jamie Hull, former Special Forces reservist. Jamie's life changed forever at the age of 32 when he was nearly burnt alive in a plane crash. Watch this interview as we discuss surviving death, the mental strength and determination to pull through and rebuild a new body and life. I believe health is the greatest form of wealth we have, which is why I'm so excited to be partnered with Brother in Arms. Brother in Arms is a wellness brand dedicated to working with veterans, first responders, and anyone on the front line. Through their education, support, and premium CBD products, they help alleviate and restore the lives of those that have been affected by physical and mental trauma. Learn about the life-changing benefits and power of CBD. Join their community today. Hit the link below. Jamie, thank you so much for being a guest in my home. I'm honored to have you here. Welcome. You're, you're absolutely, um, you're more than welcome. Sonia. Cheers. You to be here. I hope you like, enjoy my nice cup of tea that I've loving, made you in my mugs. Well. In my mugs. Jamie, look, you've got an absolutely incredible story and the more I was reading about you, the more I knew that I had to have a chat with you. Um, and we're going to dive into the, the whole story today. Can I take you back to that day, though, that changed your life? Sure. So it was the summer of 2007 and I decided to, if you like, not just walk uh, or sorry not just talk the talk but to actually walk the walk and so my ambition at that time was to actually learn to fly and learn to fly specifically a light aircraft and that's where you start in terms of, of learning and in order to do that um, I needed a specific time frame to fulfill that and I had a window of opportunity so let's just say I had about six weeks of downtime in the summer of 2007 so I'd been doing all this um, work with with my with my regiment and I've been going to different hotspots and locations around the world doing all this kind of operational training and um, different environments from jungle to arctic to mountain to desert and a wonderful rich life experience mm. but then we were due to ramp up and to deploy and to, it was an operational deployment um, later in the autumn of 2007 but I knew that I had a little bit of downtime and I thought great this is my window this is when I can fulfill the dream of learning to fly. Wow. And that ambition kind of goes way back to when I was a kid. Mm. And my late grandfather um, trained as a pilot in his kind of younger years. And he, also, he very much inspired me when I was a kid. Like, for example, remember I told you um, at the beginning that I very briefly lived in Stopsley in, in Luton. So my granddad, from a very young age, we're talking five, six years of age, used to take me to the boundary fence of Luton Airport. And I'm looking through the binoculars. You're a plane and, spotter. Well, yeah, I was. I was a bit of a plane yeah. spotter, thanks to Grandad with the kind of binoculars. Yeah. And I was inspired by the big boys, you know, throttling up the yeah, engines and the noise of the, the you know, the engines testing and the, and the backwash and, and the, um, the smell of the kerosene. 
It's and quite interesting because yeah. you were very because of course you talked about your underwater adventures being a paddy diver. Yeah. Uh, and and for you also to love the air as well. I did. Because yeah. I find, uh, and when I talk to people, and, and I know from my own experience, because I've tried my paddy, and but I love being up in the air. I love sure. skydiving. Yeah. So yeah. So to love. Done both, a bit of skydiving as well. Yeah, I can yeah. see. I can Elsinore, see. Yeah. Yeah. So um, I did. So. So from a very young age, I was inspired by kind of like the aviation industry in that world. And I thought maybe one day I'd like to learn and see how I go. And so that was what that summer was all about, 2007. So I, I decided to walk the walk. I went to the U.S. Embassy in London because I chose America because of the, the better weather prospects in Florida. Rather than, you know, conversely trying to train here in the U.K., the chances are bad weather was going to get me rained off more often than not. And I might not necessarily fulfill the dream within that summer. So, um, went out to the States, went to Florida, armed with my visa, in the, with the passport in the back pocket. And, um, and then I'm going to fast forward. So now one month into the course, and I was now pilot in command or flying solo in a single engine piston light aircraft in Florida airspace. Um, and on this one particular day, um, I'd made a flight in the morning, I'd made a quick flight from, let's call it Aerodrome A Alpha to Aerodrome B Bravo. So one small airport to another, made that hop, it was about 10 kilometers distance, and then I'd flown back to Aerodrome A Alpha. But when I'd, uh, on, on, a, on a later flight, it was around about lunchtime, so uh, it was about 12.30 hours that I'd gone up in the afternoon after a recent torrential rainfall. So was there anything that day, Jamie, before you got into the plane, um, that made you think that there was something going to go wrong or you didn't have any inclination at that? No, at that stage of the game, I was pretty confident. I mean, I've been flying solo for around about eight days mm. and, um, and it, was good to, I mean, it was good conditions. You know, I checked the, um, from in the local flight centre, I checked the weather and I'd look at the sort of radar reports and the, and the, and the, the general sort of meteorological reports. Mm. Things were good. There was a recent torrential rainfall that just happened sort of over the lunchtime period. Uh, which was which was good because then the air and the atmosphere typically clears, so it was good weather. You know, bluebird sort of sky yeah. and a few puffy clouds and 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 fairly sort of light light winds. It was good conditions really, and I was pretty confident at that stage of the um, the course and the training. So I went up, and I was um, and I was in the pattern. So I was working within the pattern in the local um, the local airspace for that small um, aerodrome. And then on this one particular afternoon, 19th of August, 2007, um, I remember coming downwind and sort of reporting my position, you know, speaking to the tower below on the radio net and, and giving them the update for my position and coming crosswind. And as I came crosswind, uh, I looked out my left-hand canopy window and I saw a thin streak of visible yellow-orange sort of flame. And it was clearly, I almost had to look again because it was... It was definitely flame that I recognised, and it was clearly coming from the front portion of the, the fuselage, you know, sort of the casing surrounding the engine in front of me, you know, beyond the, wind, the windshield. And, and I started to think, oh my God, is that what I think it is? Is that flame? And as I made my final turn, sort of left banking now, 90 degrees left banking, into wind now, and I'm setting myself up for a final approach towards the active runway below so final approach i make that turn and the fire immediately breaches the cockpit down below 
So my first alert on that was when I looked down at my feet on the rudder pedals, I could see the flame actually breach the cockpit So your internally. feet were basically on fire. Yeah, so that's what happened. So where it breached my feet on those rudder pedals, the flame started to collect around the feet and ankles. I was wearing, I remember, like these suede sort of new buck hiking shoes and socks. And the flames started creeping around those shoes and socks. And what was your what was your immediate uh, thoughts? What was going through? So your immediately, mind? I'm thinking, my God, my God, I've got to get this aircraft down. Got to get this aircraft down. And I'm looking forwards at the altimeter on the instrument yes. panel, and the altimeter is spinning down through 1,900, 800 feet, 700 feet. And as I'm descending, descending, um, I'm consciously aware that the fire starting to build up within the confines of the cockpit. Were you feeling the pain at this point? Not really feeling the pain because there was some slight through draft because of the ventilation within the cockpit. But I won't lie to you that the initial fluster and the sort of onset of panic in my mind was starting to was starting to sort of rear up. And I'm thinking, I've, I've got to get this aircraft down, I've got to get this aircraft down. And this is for real. This was no drill. And this was a real-life emergency. And I've, indeed, I'd practised for... Uh, emergency protocol with with the engine during training uh, a possible um, you know emergency landing sort of situation uh, but this was an absolute real life scenario and I had to get the aircraft down there was no no um, there was no margin for error regarding that you know I had to get it down onto the ground full stop and as I'm descending like I mentioned fire is building up and I'm watching altimeter so 700 600. 500 feet so i'm about half the drop now so you couldn't just sorry and, and and this is just me perhaps being a little bit ignorant you couldn't have just bailed and pulled your parachute not at that height and, that and height. many people have asked me but we don't you don't typically wear a, a parachute in a light aircraft okay. and there's no kind of advanced system for sort of pull red handle for ejector seat there is none of that it's just a basic very conventional single engine piston light aircraft uh, just a, a trainer or, or a basic commuter um and, and so I didn't have that option. And, you know, I had to get the aircraft down onto the ground. So about 500 feet, I became super aware, if you will, that the fire was now about halfway up within the chamber of the small cockpit. And my alarm bells really started to ring at that stage. And it became a bit of a, a no-brainer, so to speak, that the chances are that I wasn't going to make it and that therefore I wasn't going to be able to run in to ground level land it and then roll into a full stop halt. The likelihood was that I wasn't going to make it because the chances of the fire completely overwhelming me with that kind of time, elapsed time, you know, running into a full stop. And so I thought, um, I thought the only way that I've got a chance is to do something a little bit different here, a little bit uh, irrational, if you will, but this was what I was going to do. So about 500 feet approximately, it was like, a, call it a light bulb moment. And this was my game plan. I gently veered my stick to the left. I just tweaked it maybe sort of 10 degrees or so away to my left. And I, I veered away from the concrete runway in the distance below towards a grassy stretch. And I was looking for a wide expanse of kind of grass off to my left, gently running in towards that. Now I'm gliding in some 500, 400 feet, 300 feet. And now I start to look just beyond through the windshield left and right. I'm looking for hazard, looking for obstacles looking for anything that's kind of going to be in my path. I'm looking for a clear run in while I'm gliding the aircraft in as gently as I could. And during that process, I also followed the emergency protocol. 
So I also flicked back to the training that I'd received from the US flight instructors. And I remember one of the flight instructors um, had, had always said to me, you know, if there's a problem, if there's an emergency, and you've got a problem, fly the damn aircraft. And of course, th that stuck with me. And I thought, this is what I've got to do. I've got to maintain control, fly the aircraft and glide into the last moment. So I kept running in, looking forward, looking left, looking right. And I'm literally, I'm aware that I'm dropping a lot of height now, trying to scrub off as much airspeed as I could, but keep the nose a little bit heavy. And as I'm gliding in, switch everything off. So the, um, the ignition switch, the magnetos, the red switches, Alpha and Bravo off, off, the master switch off, the lights off, the strobes off, uh, the fuel pump off, and the fuel selector valve, everything off in sequence following the dashboard. Remove my headset, throw it in the opposite footwell, unbuckle my three-point harness over the shoulders and the waist, and then um, open the canopy door to my left, and very low level, so 50 feet, 40 feet, 30 feet, and then 20 feet thereabouts, and I was just quick as anything, up onto the seat. I managed to clamber through that now open door aperture onto the left wing, and then I just went for it. I didn't even look down. I looked at, at the horizon uh, because I knew in terms of to jumping safely to look at the horizon, not look down. And I, I clapped my hands above my head in the sort of prayer position, snapped my feet and knees together, and I made a, you know, I made the jump, a sort of a giant stride leap from the trailing edge to the back of the left wing. And I was doing about um, 30 knots running in, so 32, 33 miles an hour. And I jumped from a height of about 15 feet above the ground. Now, just to put that into perspective, how tall are we talking? A building? No, no, Ugh. just very sort of low, low level sort of treetops. Maybe the height of a small lamppost in the street. You know, maybe 15 feet thereabouts was the estimate. But coming in, running in the glide at that stage was probably 30 knots. So I left that wing. I, I landed in the, in the long, um, soft... Or sorry, the 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 um, it was long, long, sharp Florida grass, but soft ground because of recent torrential rain. I knew that that rainfall would give me some element of softer landing and 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 sort of um, suppress the the impact to a degree, but the sharp grass didn't necessarily help. So I rolled around in the sharp grass. I'm wearing shorts and t-shirt from that uh, cockpit, and I remember my right shoulder was still on fire. So that was like still a Roman on. candle. I packed that out. I had to pack my scalp out, which was still burning. And then I, um, I remember quickly getting myself into like the fetal position, like laid on my side. And I remember looking towards the distance where the aircraft was running in. And I just caught a glimpse of the aircraft in the distance, maybe 70 feet or so. She was nose heavy, left wing down. And I caught a glimpse and the propeller was probably no more than about two meters, about six feet above the ground. And I physically watched my own aircraft essentially crash land into the ground, ugly noise, you know, crumpling, crashing, and the dirt and the, the, the dust flying up everywhere. So you would have been dead had you not have jumped? For sure. I mean, subsequently to that impact, that crash, there was a short pause, and we're talking eight, ten seconds max, and then there was an immediate explosion where clearly the um, the fire had, had breached the... Um, the actual fuel source and it was an immediate like bomb blast going off so you're lying there you're in the fetal position um obviously burnt 
how did it feel knowing that you'd survived this? Um, or, I or, mean, or were you conscious at this point? Were you, were you I was conscious? still conscious throughout all of it. So I, for the record, I did not sustain a TBI or a traumatic brain injury. You know, I had a secondary impact, sort of face versus the ground. Uh, and I bilateral nasal fracture, superorbital eye socket fracture, multiple soft tissue lacerations from the sharp grass. Um, I had a, a hyperextended left index finger, which fractured, popped my collarbone, which fractured, uh, inadvertently ruptured colon, large intestine, lacerated my liver, but I was 63% third and fourth degree burn. So I was a huge trauma. And Six, you asked a question. 63%. 63, 63%. Third and fourth degree burn. Fourth degree burn means we're talking exposed bone because the burn in, in the lower shins, in the lower limbs was so deep. So that's the fourth degree element that I sustained down there because it was burning for the longer period. So in the, the flames had gone right through your skin and right through your muscle, all your tissue, right through to the For brain. sure. So we're talking the, the top three layers of skin down to sort of the deeper sort of um, substrate of skin, hence the sort of third degree. And, and then the fourth degree is when you have element of exposed bone um, that is protruding as a result of the burn with the exposure. And so I was a massive trauma. There's no, let's make no, make no bones about that. You know, I was um, a tremendous trauma as a, young, a younger man. I was 32 years of age when it happened. I was a young buck. And, and, I, and, and the luck of the draw for me was two things. One, I was as fit as a butcher's dog mm. because of virtue of who I was and kind of what I did at the time, you know, partly for a living with my role with the, um, the army. But two, and moreover, I got picked up. So I got airlifted quite quickly from the, the location. I got an ambulance on scene very quickly, but then subsequently a helicopter. Quick airlift. So they talk about that golden hour emergency medical repatriation mm. response. And I got taken to arguably, probably the world's number one burns and trauma right. facilities in Orlando. Mm. And those boys and those men and women, sort of 24-7 around the clock for the next six months, put me in drug-induced coma. They worked tirelessly on me around the clock. So you were in a coma for six months? Six months. While they were working on you? Six months. They, they did my hands on day one. Pretty good hands mm. for a, a burns guy. And, um, and to give you an indication, it was 2.7 million US dollars on the medical insurance. And it's not a boast as such, but purely to give you a greater understanding of, of what, what it was that the, the medical authorities in the US had to do for me to pull me, like an extremely traumatized young man, back from the brink. So six months after an induced coma, do you remember that day that you woke up and how did you feel? I do. Yeah, it was um, probably one of, it was probably the second toughest day in my life. So the day of the incident, when it happened, the immediate pain in the aftermath and the pain being off the charts, indescribable, that was, you know, that was the worst day of my life. But the second worst day was six months later, and I literally woke up to the, um, the sort of ear bashing of one of the Essex nurses in, bless her, in Chelmsford Burns Unit uh, in, in, um, in, back in the UK now. So I was on the central burns unit for the UK. So they transferred you from the Florida uh, burns unit to over to the UK whilst you were in a coma. They did indeed. And this nurse specifically, it felt like a rude awakening because I'd been in America for six months. I don't have very much memory of that. Maybe one female 
American voice, and I think she was probably my lead clinician or my main nurse mm. in America. So I had sort of vague sort of memories of, of that voice and that tone. But then this Essex nurse was like, all right, Jamie, got to get you moving now. Got to get you sat up in bed, my love. Got to get you sort of, uh, you know, up, you know, slowly sort of up. And I'm like, what the... F-? And there was this tremendous fog going on and um, I was really, really confused. And then she sort of opened the window a little bit and this kind of rude sort of draft coming in almost. And, and I felt that was quite uncomfortable because the, the cold air. And it was actually February now, 2008, so six months on. And then very quickly, I remember this nurse, the fog clearing, and I kind of just about fathomed where I was and the fact that I'd survived and the fact that I'd made it and I was back in the UK. And Can you remember the thoughts that were going through your mind? I've made it. Yeah, I mean, it it wasn't good. It wasn't good. I mean, I was um, in a desperate state and I felt like I was really holding on and the pain was really quite intense. And I was on a lot of analgesia and, 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 you know, pain relief and painkillers and tablets and so on. But this nurse actually said, so I need you to have a look at yourself, Jamie, and we're going to have to, you know, get you sat up and have a look at yourself. I'm going to get a mirror. It's important that you do this now and you do it early because there's been a bit of a change of appearance. And anyway, she wasn't wrong. She brought in this mirror, like handheld by the bed, and I had to look at myself for the first time after six months. And my face back then was um, really quite swollen and really red and blotchy and angry looking. And it was pretty hideous to look at myself. And you lost a lot of the tissue on your face or? I think it was just mainly a lot of swelling because I'd had recent skin grafts. I mean, they even did the upper and lower um, eyelids. They grafted around my eyes. So tremendous amount of work in in terms of plastics, plastic surgery and, and the skin graft. So human donor skin, pig skin, my own skin, massive amount of work from the surgeons in both America and in the UK. I was like a guinea pig. It was trial and error. So when you looked at yourself, when you saw yourself looking back at you, what did you think? Or what did you feel? It was. I thought it was pretty grotesque at first, and just trying to get my head around it, and then the change of appearance. I mean, I'd gone from being, you know, pretty reasonably good-looking bloke mm. back in the day, before the injury. But it was only six months before, right? And it, yeah. yeah, and you hadn't. You didn't know that six months. Yeah, before. and it was. It was that was obviously you know manifested by like 45 seconds in that instant I described in the cockpit with the, with the flames and, and the fire and getting blowtorched on the wing just before I jumped, um, particularly down one side. And then obviously six months later, waking up from post-surgeries in US surgery, UK surgery. So a lot of swelling, a lot of, you know, the body having to deal with it all. And it was it was really, really tough. And, and so... It's not just the physical here, but it's the psychological. And for the record, it took me three years to heal. Three years of surgery and interventions, but five years, I would suggest, mentally. And how, I want to talk about that healing. Um, I mean, there's, there's a physical healing, obviously, that you, you're going through, and I believe you're still going through that. Yeah. Um, and we're years on, but the mental healing. Um, so we, we just talked about, you know, your appearance, um, which is, you know, can be, be fundamental. Um, how how do you get like, how did you get through people seeing you as well because you know people can be cruel as well um, were you confident going out and I know this was this would have been after the event I wasn't confident at first um, it took a lot of time to generate that and I mean uh, you know tentatively you know just for me to go out when I got home from the hospital 
Because in a hospital, it's not so bad. You're institutionalised. Mm. You, you almost, you kind of expected that you can kind of get away with it in a hospital because you've had an injury and people, look, you know, almost expect to see some guy that looks a bit wounded or injured. And so you don't feel too conscious. But when, when I came home and I was no longer in that institution and I'm on the street sort of walking in the local cul-de-sac, uh, rehabilitating at my mum's house at the time back in Leighton Buzzard in Bedfordshire, uh, I found it pretty tough and I was tentatively going out and testing myself and pushing the boundaries on my walking, albeit slowly. And I remember one of the first events was I took a little trip up to the news agent and it was an Asian news agent um, and, um, and I wanted to buy a paper, but I felt really self-conscious before I even walked through the threshold of the news agent's shop to buy this paper. And then I, I kind of needn't have worried because the guy actually looked quite friendly and uh, when I slid the money across the desk to buy the paper he sort of said oh and how are you today and I kind of like sort of looked up from underneath my baseball cap and didn't expect that yeah and then when I walked out and having got the paper it, suddenly I, I felt a bit more sort of esteem you know within me self-esteem I felt a little bit better and that was the slow start of me kind of coming coming back but it was really slow sitting in the doctor's surgery waiting and like quite embarrassing where it was, it's deadly silent anyway in the doctor's mm. surgery, isn't it? Everybody yeah. waiting to see the GP. And this little girl opposite in, in her mother's, in between her mother's legs sort of stood there. And she turned in front of everybody in, in silence and she shouted out, Mummy, what's happened to that man's face? That's kids. Kids will say <laughs> probably what we're thinking, but we will actually articulate. Yeah. And, and I was like taken aback, like alarm, you know, and then all of a sudden I thought, well, this is me. I've got to step up, you know, because if I don't, I'm going to look like a prize, sort of all eyes on me sort of thing. So I actually put my, you know, my, my best foot forward, as it were, sort of metaphorically. And I actually sort of leant forward and I sort of said to the girl and kind of got the mum's eye contact and said, look, it's okay. I said, I was in an accident and I had a, a burn, but I'm okay now. I've just come to the doctor to get some medicine, but I'm, I'm feeling a lot better, you know, and... You know, I just kind of left it at that. I imagine your recovery process, as you, as you just said, was three years. If I can take you back to what the lowest moment was. was yeah, there... so it's a good question, Sonia. And, and believe it or not, um, 18 months on from the initial incident, I'm still in the hospital in um, Stoke Mandeville in Aylesbury. I was on that ward for a full 16 months, believe it or not, on the, on the burns right. unit. But 18 months post-injury... Uh, and I felt like I was still in the fight of my life. And the way that I describe this when I'm sort of generally um, you know, talking is that I felt like the boxer in the ring, but I wasn't on round sort of 12 and, you know, still fighting and still taking the knocks. I felt like I was on like round 4,120 something. And I'm still utterly exhausted, still in the ring, having had no respite, no rest whatsoever, and I'm still taking the punches. But you're still getting back up. <clears throat> and, and I didn't think I could do it any longer. And I was so tired of being in that fight and putting up that pretense every day. And, and I was going back for more surgery and more surgery, not really getting the results, and I wasn't healing properly, and that was extremely tough. So what was that low moment? Well, because I wasn't seeing the progress, I guess, that I expected or wanted... The, the logical step for me at that stage of the game was to, to check out. And, and I actually considered um, assisted suicide as a logical option. 
And that's what I was actually looking into like 18 months on. So and, that, actually, and that's not, I mean, we can't do that here, can we? You can't do that here, but there obviously is ways and means, you know, overseas. And, and I was gen- genuinely looking into that option and there was correspondence, should we say. Um, but luckily, um, I got to a point where um, I had sort of some, some external interventions with um, a gentleman that kind of was visiting me fairly regularly from the church. Oh, and that was quite interesting because he kind of came and talked to me, this gentleman. It was a, a black African guy from, um, I believe he was from like deepest... Um, Sounds um, like some sort of film, I think. Yeah, yeah, believe it or not, he was from uh, down Zimbabwe way. And, um, but he was on some kind of secondment to, to Oxford, um, to a parish over there, doing some missionary work or whatever. Uh, and someone had got word to him and said, look, um, there's a gentleman that's struggling in St. Mandeville Burns unit and he's really in a bad place, like in the fight of his life with this hideous Burns injury. And it'd probably be good if you could visit. And I guess he took the carrot and thought, okay, yeah, I'd like to go visit the guy. And they said, would you be prepared to accept a visit from this pastor, mm. a gentleman called Pastor Billy? And if you like, initially, reticently, I agreed to take the visit. And... Um, he came and it was very nonchalant, you know, the dialogue back and forward at first because I was in a very low place and I didn't really want the visits. I wasn't interested. I'd sort of lost the plot. And um, he kept coming and he sort of agreed to come week after week and I kind of accepted that because there was something about him that I thought was pretty cool that was a bit, bit chilled. He didn't seem to have an agenda and he wasn't trying to draw too much out of me. But he, was a, he became a bit of a, an underlying friend to me, somebody to sort of, lean on and I I started to talk more about me and how I was feeling and the the deep depression that I was in and I actually told him what I wanted that I I genuinely wanted to to leave and and sort of check out and he said to me that he would help me and when he first gave me that that sort of so he would help you find the means to end your life yeah for sure well he would sort of give me that that hand to hold in order to help escort me and go and I needed that kind of that assistance if you like to get there um, but in return, if you like, call it business and call it the kind of clever ultimatum, he told me to hold on for one calendar month. And I kind of reluctantly agreed to do that. I was, Why a calendar month? I don't know. He just said, look, I'm prepared to help you, but I want you to do something for me. If you just hold on for one calendar month, then, um, you know, I'll definitely help you. So we kind of shook hands mm. and that was it. And then... Um, what changed in the calendar month? I don't know. I, I'm not entirely sure or convinced what truly happened but all I know is that I went for a major surgery in the follow-up it was like the following week with my Burns consultant that was my usual regular Burns guy so he's an Indian consultant at Stoke Mandeville and I had a big op with with a, a skin covering and I think that came from at the time it was like a human cadaver uh, perhaps somebody that was like a recent uh, accident victim or a recent sort of uh, surgery where they'd managed to harvest the skin or whatever but I had this big um, I remember this the surgeon coming in wagging his tail saying we've got this big um, skin um, order coming in and it's got your name on it I'm gonna I'm, I propose to do the op in a few days time so I'm like okay yeah whatever and I agreed to do it and we went down to theatre we did the big op and a couple of days on from there probably four or five days the nurses had to as per part of the procedure take down the dressings investigate the raw wounds and change the dressings and uh, that was just the norm after after yeah. surgery 
And, and they found that the, the wounds had actually closed in quite a lot as a result of that recent surgery and that recent intervention. And that was the start. And, and it was almost like a, a miracle had started to manifest itself. And with that, um, slowly and tentatively, I started to get the, the new hope. And I started to see the light at the end of a long, dark tunnel. And I started to effectively claw my way towards that light and, and, and get out of there. I mean, people talk about hope all the time. And I always think it's totally underestimated. I mean, did that glimmer of hope, would you say that, I mean, without wanting to put words in your mouth, was that a sort of a turning point, that glimmer of hope? So it was the start of the turning point. Just to make it clear, it wasn't a sort of right-hand sharp bend in terms of turning the corner and getting better. It was more like the curvature of the earth. It was that slow for me. But it was the start of the hope that I needed and that little seed that I needed of something to hold on to and something to then therefore believe in. And call it the new me, the version 2.0 that I was now sort of starting to crawl towards. And then so beyond that, so over the, over the preceding weeks and months, my mindset started to shift. I no longer felt the, the urgency to want to check out and the, the rationale that I, I no longer wanted to be here. I started to turn a corner in my mind as well, and that was crucial. So it wasn't just the physical healing, but the turning the corner in the mindset. And with that, I was able to start to motivate myself more in a way that I hadn't had the previous motivation in those former 18 months because of the dreadful condition of my body. And I, with the new hope and the start of the healing, I started to test myself and I started to push the boundaries on walking. So at first I was learning to walk, to write, to feed myself within the hospital. I had renal failure, um, you know, septicemia, um, and, and also all manner of complicated infections and, and even pneumonia. So it was, that was the darkest, darkest period. But over the course of healing and time, I was able to start to push the boundaries slowly, learn to walk in the hospital, learn to sort of figuratively walk around the nurse's station uh, once I sort of got out of bed and then shift the boundary and the envelope. And then I was starting to walk around um, the an aspect of the hospital and venture out to different wards within the hospital and talk to other people and sort of engage the sort of social element. And then once I got out of hospital eventually after two long years, I'm starting to walk within the local area and I'm pushing the boundary on the walking. And eventually by the end of year three, I was actually learning, to, I was actually going to eight miles per day, which kind of harks back to a former military sort of ambition, sort of an eight, doing an eight miler. And if we now fast forward to today, Jamie, and I know you've been through a lot since then and you've recently written a book, which we'll, we'll mention. What's life like for you now? Well, it's good, but it took a long time to get there and many sort of frustrating years. I mean, I had surgery predominantly for the first six and a half years. To date, I've had 63 operations under general anaesthetic. Wow. So they put me to sleep. That must be some sort times. of a record, 63. Probably not a record, but it's up there. I mean, it's, it's not the norm. It's yeah. abnormal. But I've learned to accept the new me, the version 2.0, and I've embraced everything in the the sort of cognitive sense again and I'm, I'm getting on with life I'm sort of I'm wagging the tail once again about life and I'm doing some pretty cool stuff you're doing some I was going to say you do it you're now helping others right and I know you work closely with help heroes 
um, and, and you're helping veterans as well that have also got overcoming their own um, disabilities. Yeah, so I've been um, not just a beneficiary, but I've been an, uh, sort of a lead ambassador with Help Heroes for about eight, nine years. And that's enabled me to sort of help the charity a little bit as I've gone forwards. I mean, I've got so many questions and I know we're running out of time. But if you were to look back at this, at, at your accident, and I don't know if you're a believer in a fate, and I know I asked you offline about this. Um, do you believe you survived for a reason? It's difficult to actually put a real spin on that, but um, all I know that was I was blessed with the ability to be able to really truly hold on and come through that trauma. And I don't believe many people could have done that in the great scheme of things. It was um, partly who I was at the time of the injury, uh, but also, you know, according to the expert medical response that I got in the US at the time, so which I'm forever grateful for. But obviously now that I have sort of made it and survived and pulled through as it were, it's important that I kind of live a life still and I kind of still take life by the horns and kind of be the best version of myself that I can be going forwards and do a little bit to help others along the way as well. And that's kind of what I'm all about. Jamie, can you tell me a little bit about your book, Life on a Thread? Because I know it's out on a hardback at the moment. Life on a Thread, um, What Doesn't Kill You, basically, um, published by Penguin. And that is out... Um, it's just out on hardback with Amazon as we speak. It came out this this summer, but the paperback with it with a new a new look sort of revamped cover for Life on a Thread comes out with Amazon in May twenty twenty two. Well, above all, it's um, it's a real voyage. It's a real journey about um, you know somebody that went to the deepest or the lowest ebb of humanity in terms of trauma and bounced back from that. But it's pretty quirky in terms of backstory and everything that I went through in my sort of formative years. And then and then truly sort of coming through that journey, it's about how I was able to hold on, how I was able to spin it around and become that 2.0 version of my new self and ultimately go on to be to to make a relative success of the new life. Jamie, you are an absolutely massive success. And I believe you're a massive inspiration to so many people out there. Um, so I know I am truly honoured to have you as a guest here in my home and to be a guest on my show. So I just want to say thank you so much from all of my heart. Thank you. Thank you, Sonia. Hope you enjoyed the show. Remember, there's a new interview out every Monday. So hit subscribe and like and you'll get it straight into your inbox.